This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, there have been so many scientific developments in recent years. One astounding breakthrough, the creation and rollout of mRNA vaccines, was deployed as a protection against COVID-19. That technology, designed to trigger a desired immune system response to a threat, had been in development for decades. In his new book, An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives, author Matt Richtel explores how our immune systems work, ideally, and advances in treatments for immune-related diseases. In this conversation, he sheds light on various immunological developments, As he makes clear, our immune system is an intricate wonder on par with the human brain. It helps us ward off bacteria, tumors, and disease, but can also turn on us for reasons scientists are trying to understand, attacking its host. Richtel is a bit of an odd duck for a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. That award came for a New York Times series he wrote about distracted driving. He went on to write similarly complex narrative series on the science of heavy computer use, the rise of obesity around the world, and the rise of drug-resistant infections. But Richtel also writes mysteries, songs, children's stories, and had a daily comic strip, Rudy Park, for a decade. If that sounds like someone who is wildly creative and curious, the shoe seems to fit. You'll hear his excited curiosity here. Matt Richtel is clearly pleased to be interviewed here by Dr. James Heath, the president of Seattle's Institute for Systems Biology. The two dive easily into tracking some of the major developments of our times. Town Hall Seattle and the Institute for Systems Biology presented this event on February 10th as part of Town Hall's Arno G. Matulski Science Series, dedicated to understanding the world around us. Welcome. I'm Jim Heath. I'm the president of the ISB, uh, Institute for Systems Biology in South Lake Union here in Seattle. Um, We're a nonprofit biomedical research institute. We study all sorts of problems related to human health from um, uh, COVID, uh, brain health, cancer, infectious disease, et cetera. Uh, you can learn more about us by clicking on our website, isbscience.org. I want to um, especially thank our partner here at Town Hall Seattle. For the past decade, ISB and Town Hall, we put together a number of great science-focused events and we're looking forward to putting on many more, and we'll announce those as they come around. 
I also want to thank PSR Mechanical for sponsoring these ISB Town Hall events throughout 2022. Um, and tonight, it's my special pleasure to introduce and welcome Matt Rittell. So Matt is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist and a best-selling author of both fiction and nonfiction. But we're going to talk about nonfiction stuff tonight. Um, his most recent nonfiction book called An Elegant Defense about the immune system, um, the extraordinary new science of the immune system. Um, and Matt um, shared news that he's got a new book coming out, I think in just a few weeks, called Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and Soul. Um, our fireside chat tonight, we're going to touch on a number of issues um, and it's not going to be just about immunology. I think we're going to start a little bit there. Um, but I think we're going to go back and talk about a previous book that um, Matt published a few years back, which I think connects to some current events. And so I think this conversation will wander in interesting and unexpected ways. And I'm very excited about it. I'm so excited we don't have PowerPoints. It's just a fireside chat. So um, please join me in welcoming uh, Matt to the town hall stage. I was going to ask you a question to, to kick well, it off. Wait, but hold can... on, Jim. Let me say thank you. Because I realize you're going to probably out-talk me. I'm going to get a word in. Um, I just want, Jim, I, I, in all sincerity, I want to say huge thanks to you. It's a little daunting to be interviewed about science by somebody who knows so much more than I do. So um, just pick up the slack where I let you down. Um, and to the, the Town Hall Seattle, so much gratitude for having me. Um, and Elliott Bay Books, just, you know, what you do for writers is, is, is impossible to capture in words. So thank you, Jim. I, I defer. Oh, okay. Well, um, I don't think I'll out-talk you. I'll try not to. If I, if I do, just tell me to shut up. Um, so... <laughs> You know, I have I've read a few of your books um, and you have a very interesting I would say your books are like a melting pot uh, in a very interesting way in which you are able to bring together hard science, social science, including history, um, storytelling and all of that wrapped around very personal stories of either people that are sort of caught in something or people that are actually making um, make, making the world move forward. Um, and so how, I'm just having, I'm just curious, how do you piece together? Well, uh, th first of all, I th thank you for asking. And, and uh, it, it may be worth me telling by way of example, how this story came to me. And it will, I think it will go to explain this answer for all of you uh, listening tonight. I didn't start out with a yearning to understand the immune system. I wasn't even a, a science person for a long time till I started working on it at the Times. And then I had a friend who went through um, a, 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 an extraordinary, truly near-death experience. Um, can I, J Jim, is it okay if I tell everybody about Jason by yeah. way of answering your question? Yeah. When I was in high school in Colorado, there were six of us, seven of us in a group, and, and the, the de facto leader of it was named Jason, and he was Mr. Everything. He was all-state baseball, all-state basketball. He was a, a great-looking guy who got all the girls, and life was going pretty well. His dad died of cancer, 
Um, they were smoking in the house. And then when he and I were in our early 40s, so not that long ago, he got leukemia. And he got the a kind of leukemia that you're supposed to survive so so far as the numbers are concerned, something like a 90% survival rate. But he was in the 10% that fought tooth and nail with chemo and radiation for four years and wound up with four, with 15 pounds of Hodgkin's lymphoma lodged in his back. And his oncologist in Denver said, Jason, I love you, but it's time to go home and die. So all of his friends, myself included, are, have said goodbye to him. He goes home in effect to die. He's in hospice. And at the last minute, he says, what about this immunotherapy drug I've heard about? And it was an off-label drug. It was early on in this process. They figured out a way to get it to him in an off-label way and to just short circuit this story. Two weeks after he gets this home for hospice, his girlfriend wakes him up and says, Jason, get out of bed. Your tumor has disappeared. To answer your question, Jim, what drives me first is the remarkable pathos that drives the human condition and the way that our yearnings for life, death, love, etc., inform where our science goes, where our discovery goes, where our innovation goes. And ultimately, I cannot disentangle those ideas from one another. And that's why, to borrow your word, my books become a melting pot of the core motivations of the patients and scientists and their discoveries. Well, that's, that's phenomenal. You know, um, Jim Allison, who I think was the was the um, developer that was a CTLA-4 drug that your friend got, when, one of the first yes. immunotherapies that really worked. He's actually a good friend of mine. We we play music together. and um, oh, you're in that band. Well, no, we basically, Okay, I, I'm not in his band. He doesn't actually have a band. He just plays with people. So if you can play in the key of E, you get to play music with Jim Allison. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do. Is there um, some scientific uh, reason for E? That's the, uh, he plays harp. That's the harp he has. I got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so in the in your book, the elegant defense. Um, you know, when I read it, I I was struck by a number of things. Um, one of them is that this is a field that, and maybe this is one of the human aspects of it that appealed to you, but it has been propelled propelled forward by crises. Um, and you know, that one of the first ones that you bring up in the book, and I think this is staggering compared to where we are today is polio. Yeah. And, um, and I'll just repeat a couple of numbers that you, that you, um, you know, put in your book, and then we can talk about what that, how that translates in today. So in 1894, I think that was one of the first years that polio was recognized as being a unique disease there were 32 cases in the U.S. That pandemic of sorts spread until 1952, there were 58,000 cases. The first vaccine against polio caused 40,000 new polio cases. If you think about the scale of that, and I think I want to touch on this issue of how things change so fast with the modern world that we're in. Um, 
know, that was a 50, 60 year period. Uh, we've just gone through that same period much more safely uh, with, with COVID. I mean, you, Jim, you have touched on a, a, a whole mouthful of issues. Let me, um, let me just try to pick them off one by one. The first is that um, before I get to the crisis na- driven nature of this, and I'm going to, I promise I'll hit on that. I just want to say it is really critical to recognize how new immunology is. And one of the most thrilling parts of reporting this and learning about it is that these discoveries have come so recently. There's a reason for it I'll hit on. But as a function of that, we are having exponential growth in our understanding of the immune system because the baseline has been established. There's just so much to learn, and our baseline has just been established. Now, why is that? Well, the first thing to understand is that much of science for millennia was based on what we could see. You broke a bone, you saw it, we worked on it. But the immune system, not unlike the brain, is happening at not just the cellular level, but the molecular level, and we just didn't have the tools to understand it. So to go back to your point about how much has happened in the last two years relative to what happened in those 40 to 50 to 60 years, we know so much more. And then the other point about the crisis-driven nature is so astute, um, and it, it, it just really struck me when I was writing the book, how much scientific progress is made on the backs of dying people. And the reason for that is a kind of eyes wide open um, decision between a clinician slash scientist researcher and a dying person who says, do what you got to do because otherwise I'm going to die. And so these crises are massive compulsive uh, driving forces behind scientific progress. Well, I think also something that your book highlights and we as scientists know this is true, but it's not always appreciated, is that some of these radical events that happen, for sure, all of us standing on the shoulders of giants as we try to parse through the science we're doing today, um, but they're often driven by not just as as much intellectual curiosity as um, an emotional drive. Yeah. By by the very factors that that you brought up. Yeah, I mean there is a there is a an underlying core desperation um, that fuels these decisions. I want to just bring up, and I know you didn't ask, and I, I hesitate to be too political. I'm not a political person in my job, but I would point out that it's very interesting the stat about the forty thousand who died, and the faith that was put in science then, and the skepticism that science can incur now. Because in point of fact, science has done the most remarkable things the last two years, and yet they have been accompanied with a level of skepticism totally out of proportion to their revelation. I, I think that's right. I think if you look at, for example, in the um, the you know major vaccines that have come out, there probably have been on the order of forty thousand recorded adverse events. But they've been given to hundreds of millions of individuals. Yeah. That, that is amazing, especially given that 
this vaccine technology is basically brand new. Yeah. Um, but it did, but it, you know, going back to this issue of, you know, polio and vaccines and, and all that, nothing really in science is brand new. All of it is, is being driven by stuff that was done many years ago. Um, and then if you, if I think about the events that have driven the field of immunology and new insights, you had, um, organ transplants and skin grafts and, you know, things like that. You had, I think HIV, polio, of course, was was one. HIV was probably the real driver that brought us into what is more of a modern picture of immunology. Um, And as you you said, this is all recent. You can actually go and talk to the people. Yeah, you know, that that was, that's a, that, Jim, it's a, it's, I was struck looking back at the book today in preparation for this, how many people I had the privilege to interview who were founding mothers and fathers of the science. Um, you, it's like writing history in real time. Um, the folks who understood how fever works, the folk, I had the privilege to talk to Jacques Miller in Australia, who was learning about how the the origin of the T cell. I mean, these are fundamental concepts just discovered. I, Jim, I just I'm wondering if it's worth and and I I I'm wondering if it's worth just kind of laying a groundwork here, though for all the specifics we might get into, a couple of just big picture ideas about the immune system that um, have in, have since informed how I see the world and how I think about health. And I think ultimately inform the entire conversation about COVID. Would it be okay to just touch yeah, on that? That'd be great. I want to. I want to start with the biggest misconception I had about the immune system, and I think is fairly widespread. And again, informs the COVID discussion. And I used to think that I wanted a really strong immune system. I think I felt prey to fell prey. Excuse me to the marketing that said, boost your immune system. But the more that I began to understand what the immune system really is, the more I began to understand that it is at its core, a system built on balance. And that it is as dangerous when overstimulated as when understimulated. And the way, just how much should I elaborate on that, Jim? Well, I think it's just... actually, I think it's an important point. Um, I'll I'll say a, a caveat that if you something we one of my one of my um, collaborators, Mark Davis from Stanford, pointed out once is that you get a picture of an immune booster, like something you get at a health store. How do you know? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, I love this. I wanted to read to this end. I marked one page when I I had the privilege of spending like a year talking to Fauci before he was the Fauci. This is why I had time to spend with him on the phone. But this is what he said to me about boosting the immune system. He said, he said, when he hears ads promising to boost your immune system, he said, quote, it almost makes me chuckle. First of all, it is assuming your immune system needs boosting, which it likely doesn't. And if you do successfully boost your immune system, you might boost it to do something very bad. This is how I came. Here's how I came to see the entire world through the lens of the immune system. 
for those of you guys listening, you're looking at Jim, or if you look around yourselves, there are microbes all over the place. We are covered in virus, pathogen, uh, bacteria, parasite. If, if our whole body was designed to destroy anything alien, we would essentially create scorched earth. So what it really is aiming to do is trying to determine that which is really a threat and then behave very aggressively then, and then also show enormous restraint to those microbes around us and in us, and there are many of them that would do us no harm. Now, why do I mention that in the, in the, in the conversation about COVID? Well, and, and, and here this really will be a conversation because I, I would say to the audience, we are blessed with in Jim with someone who knows so much about this. And I hope you'll, I hope you'll piggyback with me and interrupt as you see fit. But when you get a novel virus, particularly one that attacks the lungs, the lungs are very, very sensitive to an immune response, you can get an overzealous response. Your immune system, nervous that it can't handle the situation, begins to pour in. And, and a lot of the ways reasons people die in the ICU with lung disease isn't from the disease itself. It's from the overzealous immune response. Does that sound about right to you, Jim? Yeah, I think that's, that's about right. Um, you get what's called a, a cytokine storm. Um, and this is the kind of thing, it's, it's actually seen in cancer immunotherapy itself when you actually are trying to literally give an immune boost. And so, you know, given an immune boost, you have to be very, very careful. And for many patients who get cancer immunotherapy, depending on the immunotherapy, oftentimes they're treated in an ICU because of the danger of, of too much of a boost. And um, the cytokine storm is not always, it's just a generic term for uh, inflammation going out of control, basically. But it's, um, it's different in COVID than it is with cancer immunotherapy. Basically, it's it's a very uh, very serious event, and you know something you point out in 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 your book is that some of these cytokines it does not take much, right? It does really. not it does not take much for the immune system to lose balance, and 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 so point one I. I just am constantly grounding myself in is how, well, how do I, I, I get into some practical things in the book, but how do I balance my immune system? And it turns out it's all the stuff your grandma told you sleep and nutrition and rest. Why? Because when your chemicals inside your body get out of balance, they can send your immune system out of balance and you can start to experience either more susceptibility to virus and bacteria or feelings of inflammation, fatigue, feverishness, um, uh, stomach issues. Um, another reason why I think we're seeing so much autoimmunity, Jim, or to put that more plainly, a zealous immune response is we're living longer. And this is actually, interestingly, a byproduct of something that's quite good. Longer life is better, you know, higher, a high quality longer life beats the alternative. But when you live longer, arguably longer than, 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 say, evolution contemplated that we might, your immune system has more time to lose balance. And you begin to see these autoimmune disorders 
kick in later in life at a time perhaps evolution didn't contemplate us living until. Yeah, I think another issue, um, just to you know, keep it at a high level, is you, know, you have two circulatory systems in your body. One has a whole motor associated with it. That's your blood. And so that's just going to circulate. You also have the lymph system. That doesn't have a motor. And the only way you keep that lymph system basically circulating, which it needs to do to keep in balance, is by exercising. Yeah. And so sedentary lifestyles are not good for warding off um, uh, immunological issues that patients get. So it's no secret that the connection we see with obesity, particularly in the United States, and some of these and some of the challenges we we face. That's right. And also, um, you know, to your point of like, I think this is a question that many people who think about your immune system attacking a foreign um, entity, um, you know, why doesn't it attack the, um, the pasta you just ate? Because that's not part of your body. Um, you need you need to have a danger signal. Yes. As well as an immune, immunological recognition event. And those, the danger signal generally will recruit the uh, immunological um, uh, recognition to, to the site. And so it's a, that's a, it's a, as you say, it's a, it's a crazy careful balance. It's, it's a, and, and I love, I love the example that you bring up because it shows how sophisticated this system is. It is dealing with so many different objects, those we inhale, those that get into our body through a cut, those that are absorbed through the skin, and every one of those, our bodies must make a decision about. And when you start to reckon with how sophisticated and how many, the volume that it must deal with, you begin to see its elegance. Uh, Again, would say the better part, restraint. You, you You mentioned earlier that I get into some of the molecules, and I try to in the book, I try to do it with some humor and self-awareness that, you know, I'm not trying to. Yes, you need sleep, but I'm hoping my book doesn't put you to sleep. And uh, and and some a number, a, a good number of the molecules that are part of your immune system are telling it to stand down so that it doesn't overattack. That's right. You have you have what are called pro-inflammatory molecules. You have anti-inflammatory molecules, and you have some molecules that can actually serve both purposes, depending yeah. on the context. Um, so one thing that I was also struck by in, in, in reading um, your book and thinking about immunology as sort of leaping forward, and, and I'll talk about what I think COVID or we can talk about that, what COVID is going to do for immunology in, in a bit, um, is that, you know, these leaps have non-trivial consequences. The whole, all of what I can think of as the whole biotech industry yeah. that we have now emerged out of these leaps. I think the, you can the make, most, yeah, go. Uh, just the most promising treatments for cancer, um, antibiotics, antibody-based drugs, it's it's actually staggering what Jim can what I touch on the can I touch on the mechanism that has driven the the, the what we understand um, it's first of all everything you say is so the 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 best selling drugs in the world right now which may not be the best measure 
of what are the best drugs, but the best selling drugs, the billion dollar drugs are all born out of revelations, revelations, excuse me, made in immunology because they began to understand the relationship between disease and our immune system. And a lot of that relationship is built on a set of signals that either tell the immune system attack or stay put. And in fact, in cancer, what is so revelatory about all these new cancer drugs is that, well, let me just step back. Here's how we used to attack cancer, and we still do, we still do, but it's changing, is that we would throw as many toxins as we could at the tumor to try and destroy it. It was a very, very problematic way of treating disease because if you throw poison in your body to kill a tumor, you're going to kill a lot of healthy tissue too. And chemotherapy is basically a war of attrition. What's di- what's what we have what we discovered? Sorry, we to be plain, I had nothing to do with it. I just did the interviews. What these geniuses discovered, including Jim Allison, recent Nobel Prize winner, who you, you're blessed to be friends with. I just got to interview him a few times, um, but he he. He, among others, discovered that what cancer is doing is sending a signal to the immune system to tell it to stand down. It's tricking the immune system. And what the new immunotherapies do is rather than throw a poisonous chemotherapy death bomb into your body, they just change the signal being sent to the immune system so that it goes and does the job that it was designed to do in the first place. That's a sea change in how we deal with disease. Instead of attacking the disease, we refine the immune system. It is true. I mean, it's it's probably one of the first, well, certainly for a disease like cancer, the first example of actually not attacking the disease directly. Yeah. Um, and the the byproducts or the, the the side effects that can come from immunotherapy, and there are some. Um, generally come from disrupting the balance of the immune system. That's, that's, exa- that's exactly right. And that's the, that's the trick in all these immunotherapy drugs is in the same breath that we're saying, now we can, we can stoke or, or put the brakes on. So in the case of autoimmune diseases, the drugs attempt to put, that sig- the, put the braking signal on. But in both cases, if you stoke the immune system or put the brakes on the immune system, you put at risk that elegant balance. And so the next step in this process is to repeatedly con- or, or perpetually, neither, neither word I like, let me withdraw, is to continue to refine the, the, the tinkering we do at the molecular level so that we get as much of the desired effect without either over attacking other organs or leaving the space open for virus and bacteria to have their way with the, an underdefended body. I think that's actually a reasonable way to, to think about it. Um, and I think, um, so let's talk about COVID. I'll give you my reflections on how that, I think everybody knows about COVID, so I don't want to dwell too much on that, um, although we can maybe touch on long COVID. But how has that driven our understanding of immunology in a way that HIV sort of led us to. Um, and I would say five years ago, there were some new technologies coming out 
that allowed us to do pretty deep analyses on individual cells. And so if you look at, if you read um, Matt's book, you'll see that, that there's a discussion of how people first discovered B cells and then T cells and then macrophages and dendritic cells, et cetera. And slowly they began to picture how these things work together uh, to mount a defense. Um, and so what one can do now is in a single experiment is capture all of those cells at once, but all at the single cell level and piece that orchestra together for a given patient in a given time point. Um, in just five years time, that has become commodity science. And, and so it's mind boggling. And you might add to that the mRNA vaccine technology. Um, so the way we had done vaccines and it was it, it vaccines are very, very hard to make. The way we used to do it in the polio era is you would find, the word they used was find an attenuated virus, which is a fancy word for a weakened virus. It was strong enough to provoke an immune response but not so strong that it either the disease killed you itself or provoked too much of an immune response. And finding those levels in an attenuated version of the virus is so hard. With mRNA vaccines, with some of the vaccines we're seeing today, what we're doing is stimulating cells to provoke an immune response by evoking, by using mRNA, by using instructions to our DNA to provoke an immune response. I, I, when I think about this, it's almost like, like thinking about the cosmos. It's so profound. And the potential of what we might increasingly be able to fight and in short periods of time is kind of mind-boggling. That's right. Well, another advantage, you know, when you give a defunct virus, which if you go get a flu vaccine, that's what you're getting. Um, uh, uh, basically a defunct virus. When, as opposed, these mRNA viruses, you have a certain capacity as an individual to harness your immune system to attack a pathogen. And so if you give the whole virus, your immune system doesn't really care what's, what's critical about the virus. It just cares about what's virus. So these mRNA vaccines focus your immune system on just the most critical parts of the virus. And so, you know, I had a discussion early on in the pandemic with one of my board members. We had actually had a bit of an argument and I was saying, you know, I think people that are vaccinated actually get better immunity than people that get the virus. That's never happened before. And um, and he said, no, it's not. That's that's completely against it anyway. But it actually is true. And that's because you've taken your uh, immune system and you've just pinpointed it at the right spot. And, um, you know, the, the caveat to that is that when the virus changes, like a big change, like Omicron, um, you probably got to vaccinate again uh, to, keep, to keep protected. But on the other hand, these vaccines are very easy to change once you have the, the algorithm. I, I would also observe about Omicron, very interesting in the context of how these viruses evolve, that um, it may be, and, and we, weirdly, what I'm about to say touches on my next book about creativity, because I, I think of COVID, if you want to see it through another lens, it's a brilliant creation. It's a very effective 
um, combination of uh, it has mass market ability. It gets around very easily. Um, but Omicron's even better. And it's better for the virus and it's better for humanity. And and what Omicron does is it transfers more readily, but it kills less readily. Um, and the fact that it kills less readily is actually better for Omicron because it's it's getting rid of its host less quickly. And and I'm I think it's fascinating to have as much science as we have in the world today because we're watching what actually may have happened to prior novel coronaviruses as they initially were extremely lethal and then became the head colds we know today. Um, as a in in as the virus evolved and we developed herd immunity, we may be watching the emergence of one of those head colds that just starts bugging us. I don't think we know that yet, but it looks that it it has the makings of that. Yeah, I think I I do believe we are moving into a a phase where the virus is something we live with, um, as opposed to be you know, have have to button down and change our lives. I think it's it's moving into the sort of flu world. It's not quite there yet. Omicron can still be pretty bad for a lot of yeah. people, but it's moving in that direction. That is what happens with viruses generally. It's not what happened with HIV, really. HIV, H, well, HIV as a as a creation is is savvy and flawed. Um, I look at H. I think it. I look at HIV. I look at uh, 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 Omicron as like American Idol. Everybody watched it. HIV is like a great show on HBO, if you'll forgive. And the reason I say that is it's a little too sophisticated for a mass market because the transmission is very difficult. But if you get it, it is a it is a, a it is a monster monster killer that undermines your immune system. I just want to hit on the one really vital thing about the change in COVID as it pertains to the immune system. And it's really been vital for my understanding of COVID fundamentally as an immune system story. Can I just touch on one element of it? Of yeah, what we're talking yeah, please about? do. Omicron doesn't attack the lungs in the same way. And, and the reason I put such a fine point on that in an immune system context is going back a few um, minutes ago, I mentioned why the lungs are so sacrosanct and so difficult for the immune system. Every time I do this, I am allowing foreign organisms inside my body, but I have to do that or I'm going to die. There's no other organ so directly, let's leave the skin out for a second because it's a little different. No other organ so fundamentally exposed to the outside world and therefore that poses such a fundamental conundrum to the immune system all the time. It, it wants to let air in. It has to or we die. But if it gets clogged with disease, we die. So the immune system is constantly in peril or worried about peril in the lungs. The difference between Delta and Omicron is Omicron leaves the upper respiratory system or is it, leaves the respiratory system alone in a way that Delta did not. And so in that way, it poses way less of a challenge for the immune system which is in the middle of the whole conversation. Yeah, Omicron can actually be a little bit worse than the bronchus. In the upper, that, right? Yes. Yeah, in the upper part. And uh, not so basically bad the, that's why 
I stopped myself. Thank you, Jim. Sorry. It, go ahead. it doesn't get to the what's called the alveolar sacs. At least that's that's what the science is saying so far. Um, so, but anyway, so let let's wrap up the uh, this discussion on the elegant defense before we move on um, with this question that I think is actually a pretty cool question. So, when you wrote elegant defense, you said that the you know the most famous virus was HIV, <laughs> which is probably a, a fact that the book came out just right before the pandemic. Um, but in any case, someone has asked if you could write a new chapter, what would be the um, the thesis of the new chapter? Yeah. I mean, I think the thesis of the new sat- chapter would be, I love the question, is that COVID is an immune system story. I believe it is an immune system story at its core because the human body confronted a novel coronavirus, not not, not just novel to science, but novel to many to many of, in the human species. And that meant that our immune systems had to begin to develop defenses to it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an immune system story because we had to, because our lungs were so impacted, but it's an immune system story also because a lot of what happened to patients early on when they were ventilated and we didn't know what to do was, was a period of time where we were trying to give our immune system a chance to get into balance again. That was what that story was. It was, can we buy time for the immune system to find itself in balance again? And I would love to write that chapter. Um, uh, uh, and uh, maybe they'll give me another shot. Well, I, I love think, the question. Yeah. And, you know, one of the striking things about, about COVID also is that when you recover and i don't want to dwell on this too much i think this is really a topic for another another town hall um you recover back to a different balance oftentimes you can i mean i think people would love you know so much about i'm sure let me ask one question just tell us all about that because it's it's really really interesting um so we've been studying long covid um or post-acute sequela from covid for a technical term pask um, for the past year, we just had a a, a big paper come out. Uh, it's, it, I think it's the first really deep study of long COVID. And what we found is that there were a number of factors that you could see right at the time the patient's either diagnosed with COVID-19 or even before then, when they haven't had COVID yet, that actually anticipate whether you will get long COVID. And without going into these, well, one of them is autoantibodies, which is you make antibodies to protect you against COVID. Autoantibodies are antibodies that actually react with proteins that you make as a natural um, uh, part of life. Some of those autoantibodies will basically completely disrupt or alter your journey through the disease. That's how a physician thinks about a patient's journey from infection to acute disease to recovery and you'll end up um, uh, in, in a chronic condition. There are other things that happen too. There are latent viruses that get woken up and et cetera. Um, but all of these mean that the balance that you end up at, and this is almost true for all patients, but some of them, it, it, it results in symptoms. Jim, let me ask a quick follow-up question. To what extent do you see long COVID as a kind of uh, chronic inflammatory state? Oh, I would say that that's that's actually a very 
accurate description of yeah. it. It's not the same as inflammatory, like like the the same cytokine storm that you get this potent inflammation, but it's an active active immune. You know, you want your immune system to be largely quiescent. Right. So that that's what so I think your paper is so interesting is it it suggests that this homeostasis, this state, this state of balance, it gets thrown out of whack in a really prolonged state. Yeah. Um, I'd, can I can I use that in the new chapter? The the guy asked me the the man or woman who asked the question. Uh, yeah, asked I, about? I'll, I'll even help you write it if you ever do that kind of thing. Right. Gold. <laughs> um. So let me let me pivot a little bit and talk about um, two topics, but I'll I'll start with the book you wrote. I think it was probably prior to the immunology book on uh, deadly wandering, and and just to give a brief thesis of what the book was about, it was described in a very human way, events that sort of were at the cusp of the laws that about texting and driving. Well, I, in the, in the same way that Jason's story got me uh, interested in, in how the immune system works, there was a kid named Reggie Shaw, 19 years old in Utah, and he was driving to work one day uh, in uh, northern Utah toward the Wasatch, and uh, uh, he swerved across a yellow divider and killed two rocket, literal rocket scientists. Um, they were building the booster for the next space shuttle. At, um, at a sophisticated lab there. And um, he said he didn't know what happened, that he'd hydroplaned. There was a long um, police procedural that wound up discovering that he had been texting at the time that he swerved and didn't really realize it because he was unaware what had happened to his attention. And I used that proce- police procedural and how and, and how his revelation came to light to explore the origins of attention science going back to World War II, when through crisis, um, uh, scholars in Britain were trying to understand how is it our radar operators cannot keep paying, are having so much trouble paying attention to the blips on the screen of the Nazi bombers destroying Britain. Why is it so hard to keep their attention? And from there, I traced the study of attention science to modern times where I ask what is happening to our brains right now that we are so, when we are so deluged with information. So that's how that book came about. And, you know, what's striking and that you teach well in that book is that there are, you know, the things that grab our attention have very different flavors and, um, and, 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 you know, cell phone texting are that, and I guess there's other examples like that, you know, the, the endorphins released with Facebook and things like this have a very different uh, attention grabbing effect than do uh, say, I don't know, uh, looking at uh, 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 street signs or, or, or billboards. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have a feeling that some of this stuff now feels familiar, but it, but I think that the, I think that what was fascinating to me is the science Science are, the science is showing why the novelty um, of the novelty and the surprise and the personal nature of what comes on your phone is almost irresistible. And the way what I would liken it to um, is um, if you were a cave person 
and you were sitting by a fire and someone tapped on your shoulder from behind, I would ask you, Jim, do you think you could ignore that? Yeah, probably. There's no way because you don't know if it's opportunity or threat. Is someone telling you there's a lion? Does someone want to be your mate? Is there food? On the most primitive level, it's a it's a moment that you cannot ignore. And with a cell phone, you are getting a proverbial tap on the shoulder from anyone anywhere at the world in a, at any moment. And what's really compelling about it is if you take that primitive notion and you marry it with B.F. Skinner's revelation that what is most irresistible is is what is delivered to us by intermittent reinforcement. Do you remember this idea where you got a rat in a cage and the rat doesn't know which push of the pellet brings the food? And so the rat's constantly pushing the, the lever. Well, here's the beauty of the cell phone. Much of the stuff we get is garbage. Weirdly enough, that makes it more reinforcing because you never know when the good thing's going to come. And so if you take it back to this kid in the car driving when he's on the phone and there were very dramatic exper- explanations for why this young man and his community in his community was looking at his phone that morning that I won't go into. But if you think about it, everybody in every poll, virtually everybody says texting and driving is, is a terrible thing to do. And yet, despite all that, and despite all the research um, and all the public campaigns and all the laws, the behavior's gone up and up and up. There's only one way to explain that. And the only way, the way to explain that is that it's hitting us at such a deep primitive level that we cannot stop. Right. Well, let me pivot off of that a little bit because what I, I wanted to, and I I don't want to end on too grim of a note, but um, you wrote an article, uh, this, I think this issue of all the stimuli that we're getting, and, and you know, this goes back to what I talked about initially, polio from, you know, the pandemic spread over a 60-year period, and the vaccines and everything took a long time to develop. We did this whole COVID thing in two years from, from, from induction of the virus to, to, the, to the treatment. At the same time, we've had a equally rapid changes in our social interactions. And the pandemic has really accelerated that. Um, and, you know, you wrote an article last December with some, you know, this has had some pretty serious consequences for, for, for younger kids. I think it's, it's no coincidence that's when the brain is, is developing a lot. And that's when social interaction is very important etc. Um, and I wonder if you could reflect on that. I know you've got some articles coming out in, in the near future, but just give yeah, us a... I will, but I want to ask this question. Will you give me a chance to be optimistic after this question? In fact, I want you to be optimistic cause... <laughs> but I know, because I know you're going to be... Because actually, <laughs> both. point of fact, all of these books at their core have an optimism to them, but I do want to touch on... I, I want a chance to get at that, um, uh, but I want to address this point. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process, your audience is gathered by now, I do long form journalism, and I'm in the process of, of uh, putting the finishing touches on a series for the New York Times about what's happening with adolescent mental health. I've spent a year doing only that, and the stories will launch soon. And I don't want to cannibalize everything I've done in there tonight, but I want to mention something relative 
that I think might appeal to this a, a science audience and certainly resonates with me. In the year 1900, puberty hit at age 14 for girls, and now it hits at about age 12. And boys are roughly a year later. It's a little harder to measure because we do we measure by menstruation with girls and boys. It can be a number of different things that are a little harder to get at. But um, and the and the reason by that the reason why that is we don't exactly know. But there's some theories that have to do with uh, more artificial light at the equator. People hit um, puberty earlier. Changes to nutrition, which sends the uh, message to the body: you're fecund, you're ready to to. Um, but but here's what happens during puberty. When you the reason I'm mentioning it in the social media age is when you hit puberty your brain goes through a set of neurochemical changes that makes it extremely attuned to social information and highly desirous of, of social information. And the reason for that through evolutionary biology is it's training you, your brain is training you to move outside the home and begin to care for yourself. But, but what's happened as puberty has hit earlier, it, sorry, as, as puberty's hit earlier, it didn't seem all that material to scientists for a long time. But now a 12-year-old is bombarded with social information at the same time that the rest of the brain hasn't developed any more quickly than it had before. The executive controls, the parts that make sense of all that social information are still where they once were, uh, developing at a pace that once was meeting puberty at 14. So now you've got an onslaught of information making you very sensitive, and the rest of your brain isn't keeping up. That is one theory that is increasingly, increasingly widely accepted to help explain why there is a, a dysregulation for many youth. Does that make sense, Jim? It does make sense. Yeah. So so, um, so what's the optimistic? Well, for, okay, here, this conversation makes me seem like such a pessimist and actually one of one of the um, you know in, in one of my driving forces is I hope that I'm providing information that lends itself to solution or at least it describes what all these wonderful people are doing. I think I'm optimistic that we are learning so much about the immune system that we're going to live higher quality of life, and I'm optimistic that and this is might be a weird way to put it that we may come to better terms with the idea that we're going to die and that we're not going to be immortal. And I think that one of the lessons of the immune system is we need to die to have genetic change, uh, to mutate. Um, but more firmly optimistic, part of COVID inspired me to write this book about creativity that comes out. It's called Inspired. And it is the story of the last two years and how through desperation, but through technological change, we're at a moment of extraordinary creativity. And I began to look at why we are cre why we create, how we create at baseline, what inspires us, and I think the seeds are here for a hugely creative moment that we're already in the midst of. So um, I'm not sure I fall. I mean, I, th that that is a really authentically optimistic view of things. Well, I I'll, I'll come back on that, um, and, and to say, you know, when the pandemic started, you know, you either hunkered down or you looked at a crisis. Uh, many people looked at th this crisis as an opportunity. I, mean, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, it's in a good way. We have, you know, a lot of things that we do that probably 
need to be changed, but they're never going to be changed because there's no driving force to do it. And, um, and I think that this pandemic has really catalyzed a lot of that change that will happen. Um, a, I think we're seeing it. On a scientific level, on a, on a, on a, on a societal level, but also Absolutely. on an individual level. And I think you can see it in the great resignation and the fact that people are asking of themselves, how do I want to spend my time? Right. What do I want to create in this lifetime? Who do I want to be? Who am I? And I, I think those questions like the, like the ones you were meant, like the discoveries of immunology often happen at the point of a gun. And that's what happened over the last two years. We looked down a barrel and said, okay, wait a second. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, in the same spirit, I would say that what's interesting about adolescent mental health is as we begin to get closer to understanding what's going on inside the adolescent brain, we can begin to tackle that earlier before it gets to the emergency room and maybe make that period of life all that it can be. Um, that's a, that may be the subject of my next book. So I'm going to stop because I, Far, far from you talking too much more than me, Jim, I could not stop talking. So I apologize for that. Well, let me just wrap up with one last question. Um, actually, there's two, but they're, they're kind of cute. Has your reporting on technology use affected your relationship with your devices? It's infuriated me about my behavior. I, I, I can watch I, for a while, it was really, really changed how I use them. And I actually think in no small part during COVID, um, I reverted back to a lot of compulsive behaviors because I was on my device all the time. I happen to know, uh, as someone who writes for a living and spends a lot of time needing to just be quiet, that I am way better off when I disconnect. And I have to remind myself of that all the time because massive, massive billion dollar companies really want my attention and I really want it for myself. So um, the last, very last question, and I'm going to answer yes to this question for myself, even though I, I'm not very device connected. Do you play Wordle? I, I keep getting notes. I do not play Wordle. And I, I think I might have to now that the times bought it. Is that, am I, am I, am I, uh, I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to love it. It doesn't take very long. It's like, it's like a three minute thing, but it's, it's great. And you can only do it once a day. So. Oh, I I mean, my life is now chopped up to do a series of once a day, three minute increments. Yeah. Anyway, it's great. Thank you for that question. I'll, I'll try it. Okay. Thank you so much, Matt. I much appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. That was a lot of fun. Let me get to my concluding remarks. Um, okay. Um, again, you can learn more about ISB from our uh, website, ISBScience.org. Um, in fact, you can tune into our next research roundtable one week from today and hear from Dr. Nitin Baliga, who will talk about finding new drugs for the ongoing tuberculosis pandemic. And you can register for this right from our website, ISBScience.org. Thank you again to PSR Mechanical for their sponsorship of the 2022 ISB Town Hall Seattle Science Series. And thank you, especially to Town Hall Seattle, for your incredible partnership. And to all of you for tuning in tonight. And thank you, Matt. That was, that was a, we should do this again. I just had a great time. Oh, so grateful. Thank you for, for you saying that. Thank you. 
Town Hall Seattle and the Institute for Systems Biology presented this conversation with author Matt Richtel on February 10, 2022, as part of Town Hall's Arno G. Matulski Science Series. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.